This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. Trump's DACA decision is a big one for students and schools. You may have questions as teachers. We have some answers. Plus, this week in Betsy DeVos, what did she do now? And did you see Chance the Rapper's putting on an awards show for educators? What categories do you think should make the cut? All that, plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. And we're coming back from a, a long break. We did not tape last week with Labor Day, so we are back and even ready, more ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? High school English. Paul Donovan, a new face at the table. What do you teach? I teach at Raytown High School. I teach uh, the upper-level math classes. Paul, welcome. And David Muhammad, what do you teach? I teach high school economics and international relations. So we have three high school teachers, all from in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Let's start with what will undoubtedly be one of the biggest ongoing stories for educators, students, and schools in America for the next few months at least. President Trump's decision to phase out the Obama-era program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, more commonly known as DACA. This program, since being implemented in 2012, has allowed some 800,000 young immigrants to be shielded from deportation, gain work permits and social security numbers, which in turn has allowed many of them to earn college scholarships, pursue higher education, and find legal work. We often talk about national news and current events on this podcast, but this is a national news story that has shall we say, a disproportionate effect on young people, current students, and recent graduates of the teachers who listen to No Wrong Answers, teachers like you out there right now listening. DACA recipients had to be younger than 31 when the program began back in 2012. Likewise, they had to prove that they had been in the U.S. continuously since the summer of 2007 and were younger than 16 when they first arrived. Not to mention they had to show a clean criminal record and must be enrolled in high school or college or serve in the military. So by definition, these DACA recipients, or DREAMers as they're often referred to as, are young. Most of them are or have recently been students. So we felt a unique sense of responsibility this week to not only address this story, but also give our teacher listeners out there some practical advice. If you have students who are DACA recipients, what do you do as an educator? How do you address their concerns? What do you tell them if they ask you questions about what they should do? To help with that, we've called in a special guest for the first segment of this podcast episode. Her name is Irene Caudillo. Irene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Irene is, a, is the CEO of El Centro in Kansas City, Kansas, very near where No Wrong Answers tapes in Kansas City, Missouri. El Centro is a nonprofit organization that serves some 12,000 Latino families on the Kansas side of the metro, doing everything from running a dual-language pre-K program to giving workshops on money management. And Irene has been their leader since 2013. Again, thanks so much for joining us. So I want to start by asking a few questions, and then I'll allow our teachers, Paul, David, and Luann, to jump in as well if they have questions for you. But I'd really like to get into the nitty-gritty of this, how this might affect teachers and their jobs, because the policy change 
um, I think has the potential and has already been maybe a bit confusing for our teachers listening. They may be anxious about addressing very specific problems that students might bring to them. Um, just so that for this part, then I'm going to ask you some questions um, that students might ask teachers as a way, hopefully, to explain some of the nuances of this. Um, so I'll be asking questions kind of in that mode. So first, um, as a student, if I had DACA status before the Trump administration's announcement, does this mean that I've now lost it? No. I need for teachers to understand that what the change is, actually those who currently have DACA uh, status will retain that status uh, until the expiration dates, um, particularly on the work permits. And most uh, currently have two-year authorization uh, for DACA. And uh, so it's important that right now, everything be, uh, according to that expiration date is in place. Yeah, and so not all DACA recipients have the same expiration date on their permits because they Correct. could have received it at a different time and they, they typically run on two-year on two year spans. Um, if I just applied for DACA for the first time recently, does this mean that um, that application is going to get canceled? So currently those that are pending prior to September 5th will be reviewed and it, uh, once reviewed and approved will be accepted and given a two-year uh, authorization. So if I had just applied before this announcement was made, I can still uh, have faith that that application will go through and I will get a two-year DACA permit. Correct. Pending all review and making sure, you know, it's it's their authority to make that decision. And you want to make sure that students received uh, the email notification that it's in pending process and it's in place. But um, all indications point that those will be reviewed and handled uh, the same way and if approved, will get a two-year uh, authorization. So if my doc is expiring soon, if I'm coming up on the end of that two-year term, am I able to renew it after this policy change was announced? So here's the most important part of all of this. No new applications after September 5th will be accepted. So those turning 15 and eligible to all of those guidelines that you just said are, have no ability to get DACA. But if your authorization expires between uh, September 5th and March 5th, which is the end of the six months. Which that, is the yeah. six months. That w that's the whole six-month kind of process. You have to renew by October 5th. Um, in other words, you um, it's a six-month of that group that issue date is about to expire, but you have to apply. So he's only giving, uh, the administration is only given these next four weeks for anyone in that period that's about to expire to make sure that they renew in an effort to make sure they have another two-year authorization. So that, that to me, seems like the most urgent group, that is the, uh, the most urgent group subset of students affected by this. So I guess what would you tell educators who might have students who are in that particular situation where they have to renew in the next four weeks? So um, kids can go to immigration attorneys and get this done uh, on their own. We, we always say that. But um, our efforts is to make sure that they see attorneys that um, will do it pro bono, um, that it's done, of course, in, in, uh, correctly and in a way. Um, the, also, there is a fee of $495. So there are organizations that help with that fee. To apply uh, for DACA itself. To yeah. Correct, yeah. to apply. So there's a fee. Uh, so more questions that teachers might get from students affected by this. Can I keep working at my job outside of school? 
your employer should probably doesn't even know how you received your work permit and they shouldn't ask um, mm -hmm. or they shouldn't question but the employer is going to look at that issuance date or that expiration date uh, so as long as that expiration date is intact um, you should have no worries from, um, from uh, as far as your work permit um, and if it is expiring, you got to make sure that if you're eligible for renewal to get that done so that you can give them the new work permit authorization. There is no indication that um, unless the government says we're going to pull those back, but that those are intact as far as the expiration date. That's when you. That's when employers have a right to say. Well, I guess I was going to ask. Like in six months, should I worry about getting fired if I'm a DACA recipient that have, you, that have a work that has a work permit? Um, are not fired, but but, but let go off. because but, yeah. you know, because, they they're, because they're worried about the, the the legalities of my documentation. No, no employer should know how you received your work permit, and no employer should fire, or harass, or make any discriminatory uh, process. If that's the case, you need to see a lawyer. We have three high school teachers here, so they they might very well get this question: Should I apply for college if I'm a DACA student? So. Every indication points that DACA was built on the fact that these kids would stay in school, remain in school, and go to school. What I would appreciate for teachers to do is to uh, continue to find a, that pathway for, for them to continue, knowing the expense is going to be high, but there's a lot of work that they have to do to look for uh, private scholarships, Hispanic scholarship fund that gives to undocumented schools that embrace like K-State, you know, I mean, they recruit undocumented to give private scholarships to. They can't take that away from these kids. Uh, teachers, you have any questions for Irene Cadillo? Yes, I have a question, something that I noticed in uh, my classroom. I have um, a couple of DACA recipients and or other undocumented students, and I've noticed they haven't said it exactly out loud, but I can tell from some side conversations that they're worried that some teachers or especially other students may turn them in. Is that a legitimate fear for these students or not? So there are also a group of kids that are not eligible for DACA that are undocumented in your schools, 14 and under. You have them in your schools. Um, they and or if they or if they sorry to interrupt or, or if they came to to the U.S. after at, 2007 correct, or if they, they, I mean, there's a lot of very particular requirements to meet DACA. Correct. I, I think so a lot of people often don't realize. Don't realize yeah. that they're not eligible or they're younger than the 15 to apply. Uh, so many correct many of those um, that they, they just don't fit into the guidelines. Uh, one of the things I would tell uh, teachers is the worst thing to do is to ask them to out and identify themselves. You don't want you want them to come to you. It's not about you going to them and say, "I think you are, um, I think you're uh, a DACA student or undocumented." Form that that healthy uh, relationship that they have someone to come to. Um, the fear is real. I will tell you, many of them have seen. Uh, family members deported. So um, what I would tell you is to really uh, find a way that gives them a safe place and an openness to be able to, to, to be open, but they, their fear is legitimate. I've had some, some students who are not DACA recipients. My school is fairly, uh, we don't have a large Correct. migrant population, mm -hmm. but um, they were wondering like, oh, could we do fundraising 
for it. Is that something that would be beneficial? Like fundraisers, is that something that could help at all or is it not really? You know, we, um, we've we kind of put out the word that uh, uh, immigration attorneys are always kind of pro bono, are always the best thing. But because these kids don't have the six months that they normally would to have um, collected the $495, uh, we're asking folks to help with that assistance. Uh, that's always a great opportunity, too, for those organizations that are helping them um, uh, kind of reauthorize or, or refile for their authorization. Um, so assistance with those uh, service fees. Now many of these, because they they are working, because ninety five percent of of those that are DACA students are actually, or I'm sorry, ninety five are in school, and about fifty four percent are actually working. Um, do have that ability to have those funds, but in this short period of time, versus knowing that they're exploration. That, that's a great opportunity. Uh, I mean, kind of based on, on David's question, I guess, for for teachers and, and students who are not affected by this directly, right? We, we're not DACA recipients. We're, we're not in the DACA community, as it were. Uh, what, I, I, what type of, uh, of, um, of, especially from a teacher's perspective, what types of supports are, are helpful or wanted and, and what types of supports are, are not or maybe not so helpful. So a couple of things that I would say for teachers is find out what your policy is regarding uh, safe and welcoming communities. In other words, what happens or what can happen in your schools if ICE comes to, to a building door? Does your, does your principal know? Do, do do the teachers know? It's not only FERPA issues, um, it's also the issue of keeping these kids safe. Um, now, they have no reason to be in the schools because they have a policy, but they've already violated their policy of that being your schools being a sensitive location. So find out how your administration, you know, can will react to some things like that. ICE has already made attempts to be at bus stops um, when who they're, you know, when they're looking for uh, parents, but they should not really be coming into the schools picking up kids. Um, so, so find a way to make sure that that information on what they are asking you to do comes down to, to, to the building secretary, the building principal, the, 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 the teachers. The other thing is you don't always know who's undocumented in your school. Um, you don't know who's undocumented um, in your neighborhood and, um, and in the restaurants you go to that are serving you. So, um, so I think one of the things that, um, that uh, I would say is, is that be careful of some of the statements that you might make in classrooms, uh, whether they be political, uh, but find a way to make sure that it's safe. And if, and, and if someone... Uh, is feeling uncomfortable that, you know, this person just said they're going to out me, find a way to deal with that um, uh, so that so that your students um, understand that it will be a safe and, and there are some things that, that you can do to make it that way because you don't know and you shouldn't know. You shouldn't know. But some of the kids that are in college now are very... Um, Unafraid, undocumented. There's, they'll stand up and acknowledge who they are. Some of the younger kids, it's it's just a lot less um, 
you know, it's it's a lot less safe, and, and they've been told not to. They've been told all their lives to their parents. Some of them don't even know. So be careful when some of these uh, young people are going after their license and then they find out they have no, they, have, they weren't born here. That's when they find out, when they're ready to, to go find a job or when they're ready to get a driver's license. More and more may find out that they're, they're, they're you know, their parents have kept that from So, I mean, I know that these kids, I mean, there's no telling what it's going to look like in six months, but is it possible for the kids who are recipients to be deported and not their parents? Or would the whole family be reported? So, the, so right now we've got an indication that all the information that they've given is not only about themselves, but they've also given information about their parents. I mean, there's a lot of information they had to fill out um, to give. So, so the government, if they could, if they if they breached that firewall between um, the folks that approve these and the enforcement, um, they ha- they know where these kids go to school, where they work, they know where their parents live. They've given all of that. Uh, so in reality, uh, it, whoever they're looking for, um, the, the casualty could be other people in their family, mm-hmm. what we call collateral. So in effect, yes. Yes, that's the fear. The fear is um, that some of these kids fear that they did this and now they've exposed um, their family. I was uh, teaching when um, the president made his statement about um, about DACA, and uh, some of the Latinas or, or Attorney General Jeff Sessions or Sessions. Yeah, just I mean, just to be. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so, and some of the there was some immediate um, stress among some among some of the students, and that's where I caught on that they were afraid of being turned in, and. I just stood up in front of class and I just said, just so everybody knows, I would never snitch on anybody. And then the one young lady then kind of outed herself right away. I think she's 17. And uh, she started explaining to some students around her what DACA meant and, and the two-year permits mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. And, and the students were really interested. And so I just kind of put math on hold for a minute and let them... Educated. Well, uh, wrapping up this conversation, I mean, I guess I go back to the the questions I was asking in the guise of a student. So, if if a student comes to one of our teachers and says, "What do you think I should do leading up to March fifth? What What do you think I should do in the next six months?" What What should teachers say? So, definitely, priority should be is if they are um, uh, their uh, two year authorization is about to expire uh, between now and uh, March fifth. Priority is by October fifth to renew, um, and they might say why. It is important that they make sure that this gives them an additional two years, regardless of what happens in six months. We want them, if if they are um, uh, comfortable enough, to be able to to also be that voice and uh, and and really kind of move uh, forward with the opportunity to tell their stories. I think that's very important that she was able to come out and tell the story. That makes a world of difference amongst their peers and amongst mm-hmm. those who are are right there beside them. I could I could tell she had some friends that she was talking to, and they had no idea that that might mean that. Her friend, their friend might not be back again the next school year if, if things go bad. So it sort of like hit them that, that this isn't just something that happens in Washington, D.C. that some politicians... Exactly. Do. Irene Caudillo, she is CEO of El Centro, a nonprofit organization here in the Kansas City metro area. Thank you so much for coming in and answering our questions. Thank you for having me. 
Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Well, it's back. The Betsy Breakdown. No wrong answers. Periodic look into what's going on with our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. The biggest news related to Ms. DeVos recently was her announcement that her department will rewrite Obama-era rules for policing cases of alleged sexual assault on college campuses and in schools. The Obama administration, let's just remind you, pushed school districts, colleges, and universities to prosecute sexual assault under the federal Title IX statute. Among other things, these guidelines pushed for a lowered standard of proof in cases of alleged sexual assault. Critics have said this went too far, denying the accused of their due process rights, stigmatizing the accused, many of whom are most often men, and in some cases leading to drastic consequences like losing scholarships and even some reported suicide attempts. DeVos has called for protections of both the rights of victims and the rights of the accused. This is an issue that um, affects colleges, primarily at least if you read the news coverage. But in high school, and all three of you are high school teachers, there are unfortunately cases in which students allege sexual misconduct, sexual assault. Um, Do you think this policy needed to be recalibrated? There needed to be a rebalancing of the rights of victims and the accused. If there's any recalibrating, it's going to be stronger rights towards the victims. They say they make this as if as if there's been a, a long track record of victims getting due process and receiving uh, validation for what they've been through when history points completely the other way that we live in a society that the culture gives more shame towards the victims and blames victims for potentially bring it upon themselves. So I don't see, I haven't seen this large wave of those who have been accused being um, mistreated and uh, spoken out against. And the reality of it is, too, that, okay, as a victim, maybe you you win a lawsuit or something of that nature, but what you've experienced will never go away. You live with that for a lifetime, and there's nothing that can be done to eradicate that. And I'm not saying that there's not something that's that is that affects the accused, but I, I think it weighs much greater on the victim. So um, I, I just see this as being is going backwards in our in our development as a society. Luann, one one of the uh, items I was reading about that was about uh, trying to protect against the accused being scarred, and I'm just sort of thinking, well, maybe the accused should be scarred a little bit because. Uh, there's, we're supposed to be living in a society where we we teach people how to treat each other, and uh, when 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 the accused we're we're working on their behalf more than we're working for than for the victim, then I think there's something wrong. Paul, maybe I just didn't read everything that I that I, that I could have, but when I was reading her statements on this, I was confused about what it was supposed to mean. So okay, she wants to protect victims and she wants to protect the accused. I think everybody agrees with that. Everybody should be treated fairly, but I didn't see any particular plan about anything. She just said, let's uh, let's look at this. Go team. And so I'm just, I'm confused. Yeah, I mean, uh, Luann, back to your point. I mean, is mm-hmm. there, was the the rules that were instated under Obama, did they unfairly at times stigmatize 
most often men who were accused of these these crimes. I think it stigmatized the men, but I'm not really sure that it was unfair. Um, if there's a question that this conduct uh, is 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 happening, then it needs to be brought out into the light. And if it makes men uncomfortable, well, gee, women have been made uncomfortable right. and have been hurt <laughs> for eons over this. To push, and I mean, not, not to say that I disagree, but to push, if there are, if there are cases of, of accused who, who are innocent or the, the, the circumstances were murkier than maybe might be made, yes. made out to be in a, in, a, in a prosecution at a university campus, um, is that problematic? I think definitely there's no perfect system, and I, I, mean, I don't want to be the only one who speaks here, but I think you get that with any system that's done with humans. We're flawed, but at the same time, the history points that that's very much a rare case. There was something that I read that dealt with uh, uh, Betsy DeVos trying to be concerned with victims in that trying to make the system better so that the accused, uh, when, they, when, they, uh, when they appeal... Right. Um, then it puts uh, it puts victims through it again because they're going to have to tell the story again when you've got the accused um, up for appeals. And that's due to that lower standard, you know, of acceptance. And, and um, I can see that that that. But it that's just where better education has to come in. We've got to treat uh, we've got to we just we have to treat women and men better. We have to we have to educate them better. We have to we have to treat men. We have to teach men not to rape, right? We have mm-hmm. to we have to teach women uh, how to be confident. Uh, we have to teach what real consent is and 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 what it's not. And we, I know that sounds really simplistic, but this is this is a really tough situation. Let's move on to the next part of our Betsy breakdown. The Washington Post's answer sheet blog noted soon after the Trump administration announced it was rescinding DACA topic we just finished talking about. Uh, Betsy DeVos uh, did not immediately comment about the decision, and it was several days before DeVos made any public statement about it. Three days after the announcement, DeVos did say something, finally telling CBS News that her heart was with the Dreamers, DACA recipients. She went on to say the U.S. is a, quote, nation of compassion and a nation of laws. And to the Dreamers, I would, quote, encourage them to take courage and have courage. So she's in a, I mean, I'll say she's in an admittedly tough place with this as Secretary of Education. We already talked about in the previous segment how this does kind of disproportionately affect the realm of education. What do you want or what do you hope she sees her responsibility as in this situation surrounding DACA? What is her responsibility, do you think? Well, I'd say that if you are Secretary of Education, then you, you are in a position to advocate for the rights of these recipients because... I mean, I read something that said that 20,000 DACA recipients are actually teachers. Right. You yeah, know, so, that's what it's estimated as. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so then you look at the impact that that has. And they're teaching non-DACA recipients, you know. And you have um, business people in communities who give money to schools. And they're also taxpayers. And those tax dollars that they generate go towards public schools. So this is all connected to each other. And I think that in her position, while her administration that she's a part of may speak a different tone, she has to recognize that as Secretary of Education, she speaks for everyone, political uh, biases aside. Um, And what she says can emanate down and have a a substantial effect. So I would like to see her take a stronger stronger stance, um, recognizing the the integrated of, of what education does to a community and what these recipients have as an effect to education in return. 
Finally, as this latest school year began, the Democratic National Committee took the unusual step releasing what it called its list of the, quote, many ways in which Secretary DeVos is hurting teachers, students, and parents. I say unusual because it's the first time ever the DNC has published a memo uh, directly decrying policies and actions taken by an individual member of a president's cabinet. The DNC's list includes 29 different items, including, in its words, DeVos's praise for President Trump's proposed budget, which includes cuts to public education, and her promotion of a school of choice agenda that, again, as this list says, lacks accountability for charter schools. What do you think has been Betsy DeVos's biggest impact, yay or nay, on your lives as teachers? Um, I I would say that there are two. I, I think her... Not helping public school educators at all um, will have such harsh, harsh effects uh, within 10 years, definitely. I mean, as we see charter schools not being held accountable and um, all the political issues that deal with that. Number two, um, fighting that transgender bathroom fight, which really when you step back and you look at it, it's just so silly. I mean, it's people needing to use the bathroom and it's just schools there to learn and schools there to, you know, socialize, learn how to be decent citizens. We all should, you know, urinate in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I use that as a rap line. (laughs) Play on words. No, I I completely agree, Luann. I've felt like there's a movement to destroy the public education system throughout the country. You know, like, with the the push towards this whole idea of vouchers and such, it's like almost that they'd rather see the public schools crumble and then let people just have the choice because we as Americans, we love the word choice. <laughs> but with choice comes responsibility and education. So if you're making an uneducated choice, then you put yourself in an irresponsible position, you know? And so, um, and then what, I mean, there's just, it, it, it recreates this idea of elitism if I have the finances, then I can afford to put my child in the best situation. But what about those majority of people who won't have that? And so I'd like I feel like she's detached. I feel like she's not um, in touch with the reality of what most Americans are going through. And, and that emanates. That's also a redirect or a direct representation of the part of this she's a part of. They're out of touch with what most people go through. And so I, I've seen. If, as far as an effect on my life and other teachers' life, I feel like other public school teachers feel this kind of pressure and this unknown, where are we going from here? Uh, and it creates a stressful environment, to be honest. I Kind of to piggyback off of that, I feel because everything is so up in the air, it sort of like feels like professionally my head is on the chopping block and she's raising the axe, but I don't know when she's going to lower it or how good her aim is. And, <laughs> and so it, it just get kind of there's a low-level stress that's always there. Well, with, with that evocative image, we will end this, <laughs> <laughs> this edition of the Betsy Breakdown. It's time for a segment now that we call Ask the Teachers. Our listeners chime in with questions, problems, issues, dilemmas they are experiencing at work or just questions they have. Consider it Dear Abby for Educators. You can go to the No Wrong Answers Facebook page and you'll find a shared Google Doc, what we call our community feedback form. You can click on that and you'll be able to give feedback on recent episodes, share ideas for future episodes, and per this segment, pose questions for our Ask the Teachers. So the question this week, how much should parents be able to pick and choose the teachers their students have? This is an issue at the high school level where you all teach, where you have multiple teachers teaching the same course um, or in the same grade level. So how much 
say should parents have in their students being able to pick and choose the teachers they have? Go ahead, Luann. You know you uh, got something to say. That's get, a tough one. Because um, I, could, I could see both sides of it. Um, if, if it's known that one teacher is perhaps more proficient at teaching something than another teacher and, you know, I'm, I'm a parent and, and that's my child, I'm going to want my child to have the best education possible. So I can totally see that side of it. But I can also see the other side that um, everybody begins at a at, at at the beginning. I mean, you know, every surgeon starts somewhere. Every law uh, lawyer has uh, his first argument that that he makes. So teachers need to have the experience of actually of of teaching a, a a range of students, right? So I can see that you know the the more inexperienced teacher. Um, would need to have those students as well. Probably the the best solution is just to have those teachers work together collabor- collaboratively so that you have maybe more experienced and an inexperienced teacher, you know, sharing their strengths. Yeah, my issue is that it could become a popularity contest because whether a teacher is newer or more experienced, there's always the the bias of this is the best teacher for this subject matter. And maybe that teacher just has a personality that reaches kids better, but that doesn't mean that they're a better teacher, you know. And I can speak from that from an experience where I've had colleagues teach the same subject matter as me, and students want to take my class because of my reputation, and I know for a fact that my colleague is more equipped in that subject matter. (laughs) I mean, that's just being honest, you know. And so, um, because my first year I taught economics, that was after I'd only taken one course in economics my entire (laughs) college career. So my first year I was terrible. Um, and I think also the problem goes beyond parents. It goes into, well, what system are you using to uh, show which teachers are more equipped? Because there isn't, a, there isn't a set standard that measures teacher progress. I mean, every, I mean there's t- attempts, but they haven't been. There isn't one like full-on system that you can look at teachers and say, well, this is the ranking system and this is proof other than test scores, but then that mm-hmm. means there needs to be common assessments, which right. some schools haven't gotten to. Well, there, I'm just going to, there will, like, national test scores in some districts, um, right. some districts that are big will have, like, district measures, and Absolutely. so those would be kind of common right. assessments. But so. there's also so many different holes, right? Like, right. I teach a singleton. I'm the only one in my building who teaches that subject matter, so are you going to compare me to another school? Well, I teach also at a school that's very... Uh, affluent and high achieving so the teacher who teaches that at another neighboring school might do a really great job but her students are coming in at a lower level so -hmm. can you really do a fair assessment right so um and that can be even class by class i just so happen to get a group of students who have a bunch of ieps and 504s and english english language learners so then the the teacher next door just so happened to get those kids and so now the parents are saying well he's he must be the better teacher no i just had a good group you know, um, are, are IB teachers better than AB, AP teachers? It's difficult. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned what you did because it made me wonder, you know, we we see that, of course, in schools. And, you know, when you say, I just so happen to have so many IEPs and 504s and teacher X does not, is that by chance? Because mm-hmm. I do question that that's even by chance. Mm-hmm. Paul, what do you think? Having um, taught every everyone from 14-year-olds that need remedial skills and class within a class all the way up to right now I'm teaching um, calculus for dual college credit. Um, I've seen, I've been part of the whole spectrum. The way 
the way it would happen, I guess, in in Paul's perfect school would be uh, <laughs> when they when they when they get into the school system, they take who they get, and um, as they progress and as they get closer to graduation, or as they know they're going to go to college, if they are experienced enough with teachers to know that they do learn better, I think there should be a process by which they can request um, a particular teacher. Um, but be able to um, justify it more than this teacher's cool. Mm. Um, be able mm. to explain why that teaching style works better for you. Yeah. In the in the end, we got, we need the the students to learn, and mm. whatever helps them learn, I think, is what we should. As you said, in Paul's perfect school. In my perfect school. <laughs> and I like what he said there. It's the students having the responsibility after they are experienced to make the choice because parents. While they have best intentions, many times they're not there every day. They don't. Know, they might not see their student the way we see their student. So they think their child is perfect, and then I'm like, no, that's your child is much different in my class. So, uh, you know, and I've seen cases where we've had helicopter parents who are very accusative, um, and you know, they they like a teacher until that kid gets a bad score, and now that's the worst teacher. So, do you dislike me, or do you like, dislike the results, and you need someone to blame? It's interesting because I've taught long enough that uh, I remember in the early years uh, this from parents. uh, He will just do better with a male teacher. Mm. Um, No offense, but uh, he needs a male teacher in order to be able to reach him. Absolutely. Um, That does not happen anymore. But um, like I said, I've been teaching long enough to remember that in those those early years of teaching, uh, that was indeed a comment that I heard and, and not infrequently. What would you say? Uh, well, um, if I'm in a system where that's green-lighted, that the parents can, can do such a thing and make that change, then that's what happened. And, I, you know, I just sort of grew a thicker skin. Uh, let's, I wanted to get in one final segment before we end with kids these days, just because it's kind of a fun story for teachers. Chance the Rapper this week announced he is launching what he calls the Twilight Awards next summer, so summer 2018. What... Um, is being billed as a teacher award show, basically. It will be hosted by late-night host James Corden and feature musical performances. We don't know who those performances will be, but if they're associated with Chance the Rapper, you have to assume they'll be pretty high-profile. It's meant to, as Chance the Rapper says, quote, celebrate teachers, parents, principals, and students who convey leadership. Now, there's very few details about what this award show will look like, what awards will be included, whether it will be, you know, just around Chance's hometown of Chicago or whether it will be national. Um, But I guess I wanted to ask you really quickly, if you could create an award category for teachers, what would you suggest Chance the Rapper give an award for? I know what I would do. I would be, uh, uh, I'd want to give an award to the teachers who could, like, think so far ahead as to make their copies in such a way that they're not, you know, um, that they're always good and that they're they're never impeding any other teachers and, uh, and you know. What would you call that award? What would, what, would, what would the name of that be? I've been trying to, I've been trying to figure that out, but I mean, you know, you just, you, you, you know, you're, you're the, the best copy maker award so that you're just like, you know, you're out of everybody's hair and, you know, all that. Paul and David, what would you uh, what would you create? A, what would you suggest Chance the Rapper uses an award category? <laughs> um, this would probably never fly. But after I after teaching some of the higher stress schools that I have, I would really like to give the Trooper Award to teachers who can teach hungover. 
<laughs> that was not. That did not end where I thought it was going. I didn't oh know where you were going. Yeah, I had no idea. So best hungover teaching award. Okay, yeah. All right, fair enough. All right. Well, let me first say, <laughs> Chance the Rapper, if you're listening, if somehow you hear this, I am more than available to perform. Oh yeah, um, Dave is a rapper. Plug yeah. for myself. Yeah, you need. If you're gonna have a teachers' award, you need to have teachers performing. Uh, <laughs> have an award for the most capable of not hitting a child when they've considered it. So mm. most the resilient. Award. The, restra- the restraint award. award. Yeah. yeah, the restraint from putting a child in restraint. <laughs> oh, we've all been we've all been pushed to that point where it's like, oh my goodness, if you say one more thing. <laughs> and you could do something like the most done on the least amount of sleep. I mean, because yeah. we've all been oh, there yeah. before too. I think, and I think when you look at these awards, that's the thing with teaching. It's like most of the things that we do are immeasurable, right? Like. You do it day after day, and like so. How do you, to award that like the hardest working? Okay, like what does that look like? Yeah, every teacher works hard. You know, most teachers work hard. It will be interesting to see how it shakes out. What exactly will be? Um, Is he giving away some money? Highlighted or benefit? <laughs> we'll see if uh, some of these awards make it in there, though. <laughs> Give some money with it. Uh, well, stay tuned. We're gonna. Do Kids These Days After the Credits, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. When you go to our Facebook page, log on to our shared community feedback Google Doc, give us some ideas for future shows, and ask questions for an upcoming Ask the Teachers segment. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe, leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Luann, what are your kids into? I'm ready for this, even though we just got back to school. So some of the younger kids are telling me that they're very excited about Stephen King's It. Right, So the movie coming out, see that. And some of the older kids will tell me that they're, I'm I'm not that cool, but there's this logic song. Yeah. Okay, right? About suicide. And so they're they're Um, into that and they're uh, humming that in in the halls and stuff. Yeah, it's really powerful. David, what are your kids into? Uh, well, I've always mentioned the dances, so homecoming. Uh, I have a, a freshman who's quite the ladies' man, and he's had three girls ask him. And, uh, and so he was, he was pretty confident this past weekend. And then uh, uh, we had uh, a lot of kids going to Buzz Beach Ball. So they were excited. A local local concert. Yeah. Event, so I just yeah. told them I was like, yeah, you know, I was supposed to perform, but you know, <laughs> I had to get ready for the podcast. Podcast, you know. So I had to come <laughs> oh, don't put that on me. <laughs> no, I, I would prefer to be here than Uh-oh. performing next to thousands. Sure. <laughs> mm, yeah. Mm. And Paul, what are your kids into? Uh, part of it, they're really into it. Um, a lot of them only know the the old TV show, which I personally hate, but. It's Tim Curry gave a performance for the ages, and so they want to compare now with the new clown. I also have, uh, I'm a gamer, so I ended up talking with a lot of uh, gamer students, and everybody right now is into Destiny 2, um, and they're playing, there's a big fight over whether it's better on Xbox or PlayStation. Hmm. I'll let you hash that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, David Muhammad, Paul Donovan. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast, even though he lives in Chicago now. 
sad face. Uh, thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.